Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for tuning in once again to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. Today, we've got a very special show for you. It's a doubleheader, two author interviews, one with Don Bentley, and then immediately after Don, we have Taylor Adams, two amazing thriller authors with amazing stories. You're going to love both of these conversations. We have lots of author interviews coming up that you can stay on top of at storycraft.cafe. Next week, we have two of the biggest fantasy authors publishing today live in the Storycraft Cafe. Tuesday, we have Brent Weeks, and Thursday, we have Christopher Paolini. You don't want to miss these amazing authors, and be sure to join us live so that you can share your comments or questions with them. Thanks, as always, to Dabble for sponsoring the Storycraft Cafe and this podcast. And we are live here in the Storycraft Cafe. I am your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Don Bentley, uh, one of my favorite um, thriller authors. I I don't even quite know how to classify uh, your books, Don. I just love them so much. You've got a brand new Matt Drake novel. This is book four uh, in the Drake series, is that right? That's right. Forgotten War. Uh, it has been available for, I guess, a week today. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Last Tuesday. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, welcome to the show, Don. Thanks so much for having me again, Hank. Yeah. Uh, Matt, I mean, <laughs> Matt, um, <laughs> Don, I absolutely love the Matt Drake series. Um, there's something about this group of characters that you write that just is so timely uh and that resonates so deeply with with a lot of people um where did where did the idea for drake come from yeah i appreciate you saying that so um as you said forgotten war is the fourth book in the series and um and without sanction is the first book and um before without sanction sold uh, i wrote three books that didn't sell and so when I was sitting down to write Without Sanction, my editor is a guy named Tom Colgan, and he's fantastic. He's edited everybody from Janet Ivanovich to Lee Child to right. Tom Clancy when he was still alive. And Tom Colgan said that when you're a new writer debuting in a genre, what you need to do is something that's the same but different. And so the same from the standpoint of, you know, Brad Taylor's a good friend of mine. He writes the fantastic Pike Logan series. Love and my that. book, hopefully, yeah, he's, he's such a good guy. And my book hopefully should be shelved in the same area as his. But if I'm not going to write a better Brad Taylor book than Brad does. And so you have to figure out what is the different thing. And so when I sat down to write Without Sanction and now Forgotten War four books later, I started with Matt Drake and I thought, you know, what could I do that's a little bit different than what's currently in the genre? And so Nelson DeMille is a huge influence of mine or on me rather. Uh, he was kind enough to blurb Forgotten War and his John Corey series. I thought 
was fantastic for a lot of reasons, but mainly because I loved hanging out with John Corey. And I remember telling right. my wife, I'm like, that guy is so funny. I would go to the grocery store with John Corey just to listen to him talk. And right. so when I looked in this genre, I said, you know, there aren't a whole lot of protagonists that are kind of that self-depreciating, witty um, humor. And so I tried, I decided to write Matt that way. Um, the second thing I did is I was in the Army for 10 years and then was an FBI agent for a couple of years. And my job in the FBI was to run and recruit what we call sources in the criminal world and what folks in the intelligence community call assets. And there were, when I was looking at the genre, there are a lot of special forces types. There were a lot of uh, folks who were assassins or something like that, but I hadn't seen a whole lot of folks who were straight up spies. And so I make Matt Drake an employee of the Defense Intelligence Agency or DIA. And his job is to go run and recruit assets overseas, kind of like it was my job to do that here. And then the final thing I did uh, when I got out of the FBI, I spent about 10 years working for companies that uh, marketed technology to special operations command or the intelligence community. And so my co-workers, many of them were all from the Ranger Regiment. And that was another area that I hadn't seen represented a whole lot in fiction. And so I made Matt a former Army Ranger. And so those were the things that kind of came together to shape him and hopefully make him a little bit the same but different in the genre. Well, one thing that, that you love about Matt Drake is is not just this character and for all the reasons that you just explained, mm -hmm. but um, – the the supporting characters, yeah. uh, Frodo especially. Frodo is one yeah. of my favorite characters in a book. Thank you. Um, you know, from uh, I, I I didn't serve uh, mm -hmm. like you did, but I can imagine my uh, one of my sons in law is uh, is in the uh, in the Air Force, mm -hmm. and um, I, I and and my dad and my father in law both were as well. Um, but I understand that the people around you. Mm -hmm. are just as important if if not more yeah. so that the, yeah. the the connection of a team and yeah. you know uh building on each other's strengths and you know building a team where where each person uh is uh a specialist for for lack mm -hmm. of a better word at at different areas and the uh what is what is uh drake's team mean to him yeah yeah, so a couple of things. So Frodo is um, not a hobbit. That is uh, the, the call sign of his best friend, a guy named Frederick Tyler or Frederick Tyler Cates. And he goes by his call sign of Frodo because Frodo was in the Delta Force and in that organization and, and some others, you're awarded a call sign. And, and the call sign is often not complimentary and you usually don't have uh, any say in the call sign you're given. And so when Without Sanction started, Matt and Frodo were paired together because Matt was a case officer running assets across uh, originally Iraq and Frodo was detailed to be his bodyguard. And so um, their relationship is kind of emblematic of the relationships I had in the service in that um, Matt Drake is a, is a white kid who grew up outside of Salt Lake City and went to college at the University of Texas and, and then, um, you know, became an officer where Frodo is a black guy who grew up outside of Philadelphia, never went to college, went straight into the army and then went through um, and became part of Delta Force. And so on face on the face value, those two people shouldn't have anything in common. But what you see in the book is that they enjoy this 
this friendship that goes um, beyond just a friendship to a brotherhood. And that was very much what being in the military was like for me. You know, the, the men and women I served with became brothers and sisters, one of my closest friends. My wife um, knows how to make Puerto Rican beans and rice because one of my closest friends was Puerto Rican and we served together two or three times. And one of the times he got, he and his wife got to our next duty assignment before we did. And we lived with them for a month and a half. And that was just people. What I loved about the military is people from all backgrounds, all belief systems, you know, all creeds coming together and becoming this lethal team that gets forged together in the fires of combat into a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And so I very much wanted to show that in, in my books. And so Matt and Frodo are, are kind of a, a stay a, a common in all of the books, but what I wanted to do in Forgotten Wars expand that a little bit. And so when the book starts, uh, Matt and Frodo are in a bar and they're having a beer, and two Army CID or Criminal Investigation Division agents come and they arrest Frodo. And so, um, and they arrest him for a war crime that allegedly occurred 10 years earlier during Matt and Frodo's first tour together in Afghanistan. And so Matt has to try to clear Frodo's name. He, he goes to find the other members of that operational detachment or ODA alpha team, the Green Berets they served with. But he figures out that each one of the men who were on the objective with he and Frodo and would know what happened have, have, mis, have died under mysterious circumstances. And so the only hope Matt has of finding out what really happened in the room where Frodo's accused of murder is to go to Afghanistan and find the interpreter who served with them on that mission. And the only problem is the book takes place during 2021, during our fall from Afghanistan or our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so for the first time, Matt goes to do an operation and his government no longer has his back from the perspective of DIA won't send him to Afghanistan. And so Matt kind of puts together this ragtag team of veterans to go do what the government won't. And so Forgotten War is very much a work of fiction. It's meant to be a good story, but it's built on actual events that happened. Many of them I've modified, many of them they haven't, with things like the Pineapple Express, where these civilians who once served said, by God, when I was in Afghanistan, our Afghan allies stood shoulder to shoulder with us, and I promised them that if they did that, America would protect them. And so I'm going to go honor that vow. And and that's part of Forgotten War. And you get to see that cast of characters come together in the book. The Forgotten War is, uh, like you said, it's uh, it's not a blow-by-blow blow retelling of what happened, yeah. but it is yeah. a, a fascinating story set there. Um, yep. A lot of authors are very um, – reticent uh i started mm-hmm. to say the word skittish but that's not, not <laughs> really, um to to deal with real events uh yeah you know, it, it gets it gets hairy uh you know yeah. when you're writing a, a book for a broad market you you know um mm-hmm. you didn't shy away from uh, a lot of the controversy that was around yeah. that um what what are your feelings about Dealing with, I mean, you can talk about this situation specifically if you want, but sure. it's kind of the the wading into the real life waters that a lot of authors will shy away from. Yeah, so I'm an Afghanistan veteran. I served as a uh, air cavalry troop commander in the army from 2005 to 2006 in Afghanistan. And so in the summer of 2021, in August of 2021, as Afghanistan was crumbling, 
uh, it, I just, you know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I, I couldn't work for two weeks. I'm just on one hand, um, I wanted us to be done with Afghanistan. I have a son who was born shortly after 9-11, who is now pursuing, pursuing a career in the Marine Corps. And as a father, I found it abhorrent the thought that he would have to potentially go back to Afghanistan a generation later. And, and for what, you know, what, what in the world were we even still trying to do there? And the same token, watching it go down the way it did, watching 20 years of blood and treasure and, and men and women lost and time spent away from family, just, just go up and smoke, just rocked me. And so as I was talking to other veterans and texting and, and trying to make sense of it, the question that I kept getting over and over again that, frankly, I was asking myself was, was it worth it? Was the 20 years that we sacrificed, were the multiple deployments, were the, the time away from family and birthdays missed and friends lost, was any of that worth it? And so when I sat down to write the fourth book, I knew Afghanistan was going to play a central role to it. And so for me, it was... My job as a writer is to tell a story that keeps you up at night, that you have to turn one more page, that you have to read one more chapter. But I also know that readers resonate with veracity. And what I mean by that is that in a great book, what's happening is the author is trying to answer a question for himself or herself in those pages. And I was really wrestling with that question. And I felt like if it if I didn't shy away from it, if I was brave enough to put it in the book, that readers would respond to that. And so what I wanted to do was use the actual events of Afghanistan, the fall of Afghanistan, the, the Taliban taking Bagram and Kabul and watching all these cities you know, crumble under the Taliban onslaught. I wanted that to be kind of the heartbeat that drove the book. But I also wanted to be sensitive to the real lives that were lost. You know, I dedicate the book to the 13 men and women who were killed by the uh, suicide bomber at the Abbey Gate in Bagram. And so I wanted to tell a great story. I wanted to involve Bagram, but I also, or Afghanistan, but I also wanted to be very careful that I wasn't using tragedy to, to sell books or to give the appearance of that. And so it was right. something I definitely spent a lot of time uh, working on. And this is the first book we actually have an author's note because some of those events happened, but they happened in an order that or at a pace that was slightly different. And I needed to slow them down in order to give the book more attention. And I talk about that, but it's it's been really great so far. I've gotten a lot of the early reviews talk about um, the sense of heart that's in this book, the sense of emotion that is often and not in books of this genre, even though it's a really great story. But the the ones I treasure most, you know, only one quarter of 1% of the American population served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so you think about that. That's a tiny, tiny fraction of our population that shouldered this nation's wartime burdens for 20 years, and they did it voluntarily. And so most people probably don't know somebody who served in Iraq or Afghanistan. Most people probably aren't related to somebody who served. And so what I love the most of the reviews that I get from veterans who say, this is what I tried to say if I could find the words to say it. And so I deliberately steered clear of anything political. I didn't want to get involved in administrations and stuff. I just tried to present what was happening from the vantage point of the men and women on the ground who were who were doing voluntarily what their nation asked them to do and who some of them paid the ultimate price because of that. 
And and what an incredible uh, telling of that story it is. Um, this this book is a uh, political thriller on one hand, action adventure on another hand, police procedural. Um, <laughs> you know, you kind of dip into that murder uh, investigation. Um, when you first conceived of mm-hmm. this story, um, how did you how did you start kind of mapping out? what this story would be and and all of the the complicated pieces that you wove together. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because it is by far um, the hardest or the most ambitious book um, I've written. And it, and it didn't, I didn't set out to do that necessarily. What I wanted to do is two things. So number one, um, I get a lot of um, emails uh, from readers or reviews talking about how much they love Frodo and how much they love Matt and Frodo. But when Without Sanction, the first book in Forgotten Wars, the fourth book, when the first book starts, Frodo has already suffered um, this catastrophic injury from a, uh, in, in a, a, a um, improvised explosive device that amputates his left arm and severely damages his, his leg and basically ends his career as a commando. And so what I got a lot from readers was, man, I would love to see Matt and Frodo together went before Frodo was hurt. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. That would be pretty fun to do. And so at first I thought I was going to write an entire just throwback book that just showed kind of their origin story. And then when I was talking to my editor, my editor is also Mark Graney's editor who writes the fantastic gray man series and Mark's book. um, I think it was burner actually had two alternate timelines. And my editor's like, why don't you do that instead? Why don't you have part of the book be, throwback and part of the book be the timeline. And so then I needed something. And by then Afghanistan was crumbling, but I needed something overall to drive the plot. And so one of my friends is um, that Frodo is partially based on spent was an army ranger, but then spent the majority of his career in Delta force. And so he started, he's the one I call a lot to talk about um, tactics and what the guys are thinking. And so he told me um, about this scenario that I, that I, that as he was as a writer, you hear a lot and you research stuff, but then every now and then it's kind of like somebody hits a tuning fork and it just this thing that just resonates in your mind. And so as he was laying out part of the story, I'm like, oh man, that would be the fantastic thing that drives all of this and kind of ties it together. And, And then the last part of it, again, Nelson DeMille not just with his John Corey, there are two books. So Nelson DeMille was a decorated Vietnam uh, war veteran was actually an infantry platoon leader. And there are two books he wrote um, about Vietnam that, that very much impacted me as I was writing this. So the first is called up country and it's about a um, army um, CID agent who has to go back to Vietnam after the war's over and investigate a crime that allegedly took place. And then the second one, the name escapes me, I think it's called something honor and it's about a guy who served in Vietnam and I think witnessed a potential war crime and then has to go back into court to figure out. And so you as the reader are constantly trying to figure out, did the guy do it? Was right. he a part of the war crime? Wasn't he? And so all of that kind of swirled together and became Forgotten War. Love it. Um, like I've said um this is one of my favorite series that's currently being written right now. And I, I love to see what you're going to come up with. Um, you, you not only write this series, which is yours a hundred percent. You also write 
over in the Clancy universe. Uh, and did I hear news recently about about a, a new series that you're going to start or an, an existing series that you're going to be the new author on? Yeah, absolutely. So this year's a little bit uh, crazy for me. So Forgotten War, like you said, just came out last Tuesday. And then on the 3rd of May, I believe it is my third Tom Clancy book that's called Flashpoint comes out. And then my fourth Tom Clancy book that's called Weapons Grade comes out in September. And then I just found out that I was selected to take over um, the Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series for Kyle Mills. And so Kyle's last book is called um, Code Red that comes out in September. And then my first book in the Mitch Rapp universe will come out in September of 2024. So, yeah, it's been it's been amazing. Um, I didn't think it could get any better than writing for the Clancy estate. And um, and then the opportunity for Mitch Rapp came up. And Vince Flynn is my all time favorite um, writer. I apologize if I've heard this story on your show before but when my either my second or third book didn't sell i took my favorite um, mitch rap book and broke it down scene by scene in index cards and taped it to my bedroom wall because i didn't have a, an office back then and i always tell folks you know it was it was like the difference between looking at a building and looking at the blueprints of the building like when i when i saw it all mapped out then i could start to see you know how many scenes does vince go before he brings mitch rap back you know How often does he have an action scene? How many, you know, where does Irene come in? And so to get the chance to continue his legacy um, in 2024 is just astounding to me. That is what, and and Kyle has done amazing things with that series. Amazing. What is, what is it like, um, you know, going from a a book that you have absolute complete creative mm-hmm. control over um you know with the with the four books that you've written in this series yep. and then you know uh stepping into i don't want to say stepping into another author's shoes because it's it's, sure. it's different than that but playing with his characters and his world yeah. what you know from a creative person standpoint what's the difference in approaching a new Drake novel as opposed to a new Clancy novel or even now a, a new Vince Flynn novel where the rules are already set and the characters are yeah. already created? What do, do you feel any constraints there or is it, um, is it freeing because these rules have been set already? What, how does that work in your brain? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm very fortunate that I've had the same editor for all eight books um, that I've written because I just turned in um, the edits to Weapons Grade uh, last week, I think. And so my editor is a guy named Tom Colgan, and he's edited edited everybody. And um, <laughs> and he, uh, he lets me do... Um, what I want in the, in the first draft. And what I mean by that is, um, so a good friend of mine is a golden glove boxer and he boxed for Penn state when he was in college. And he said, you know, the purpose of a referee in a boxing match is that that referee's job is to worry about your opponent. So you don't have to, the only thing you have to worry about is fighting as hard as you can. And the referee's job is to make sure the other person doesn't get hurt. And so a great editor I feel like is is like that for an author so that when you sit down to write this first draft, you're not thinking of constraints or rules or boundaries in the universe. You're thinking of writing the biggest, broadest, most expansive story you can. And then it's the editor's job to be the guardrails for you. And so 
Tom's mm. done a, a great job of that for me. And I, and I, um, I'm very conscious of the world that I write in, that it's Clancy's world. And, and I stand on the shoulder of giants to do that. But I also have ideas of how to push things and make them bigger and try and find some areas that, that other people, some untilled soil and try and make that my own. And, and Tom, to his credit, there was in Target Acquire, the first Clancy book I wrote, there were a couple scenes where he reined me in a little bit and he said, hey, this is, you know, what this sounds more like Matt Drake um, than Jack Ryan Jr. You need to pull this back or he wouldn't talk to Clark that way or something. And so he never in any of those things said, stop writing that way. What he what he did is said, hey, here's how we can still trying to do what what you're trying to do with that scene without um, compromising the universe that already exists. And that's such a freeing thing for a writer because you don't have to you don't have to start from a a point of constraints or a point of limitations. Like I feel like every book I get to write with Tom Colgan, the sky is wide open and I can push it as far. Every single one of these books taxes me as a writer. And I feel like hopefully that ends up being a reward for the reader because I'm I'm not, I'm trying not to do something episodic or not something that's similar. And he's the safety net for it. And for Vince Flynn, Emily Bessler is a fantastic oh, yeah. editor who you know edits Brad Thor and Vince Flynn when he was still alive. And she will very much be the bumpers for this series because she was Vince's editor the entire time. She was Kyle's editor for the last 10 years. And I know she will be um, my safety net when I'm writing my first Vince Flynn book. And so there's, I think, I think it's when you're writing for a legacy author, it's, you need to start from a place of, you know, intense respect for the world they've created, they've created and in a sense of humility in that the, you know, the, the folks who came before you built this universe and made it broader and more expansive. But I think you still got to swing for the fences as you're writing it. Um, right. And then, and then know that your editor is going to help bring it back in. If you stray too far over the line. Are there um, series Bibles that exist for these characters with all the things that have been done and the characters that have been introduced and all of that? Or, you know, is it just, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back and reread what's been done and, and take my own notes. Yeah. It's funny you asked that because Mark Graney's a good friend of mine. And so when I got the Clancy gig, I've, I talked to him several times before um, when I was still trying to figure out if I thought I could do it or should take it. And then afterwards I said, Hey man, when you, when you took over this gig, was there some kind of series Bible or something? And he said, no, but I'll send you what I have. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. And so he sends me, I forget which one of Tom's books, you know, all his books were like oh, the yeah. size of a dictionary. And, and so it's this massive book. And on the, 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 the paper side, not the binding side, the paper yeah. side, there are all these little different colored post-it notes. And so you would turn to red and this red one would be, there'd be a section market highlighted that says Jack Ryan Jr. has blue eyes and brown hair. And so it's all of these little post-it notes. And wow. so I took my daughter who I think was 14 at the time. I'm a big believer in capitalism. And I gave the book to her and I'm like, I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour to turn this into a Bible. And so she did. And I so I it. asked Kyle Mills kind of the same question. And Kyle, and so Vince died. Um, obviously, everybody knew he was sick, but he still yeah. died um, unexpectedly. And he, and so when Kyle agreed to take over the series, 
he actually delayed um, the pub date for his first book because he wanted to read through the entire series again. And then he said to um, to the uh, Flynn estate, they said, just send me what he's got. He's like, I'm sure he's got, you know, a box by his desk with a bunch of notebooks in it. Just send me what he's got. And so what they sent him was a Word document with three pages on him. And, and it was the first three pages of the new novel. And Kyle's like, oh. what about the rest of it? And they're like, there is no rest of it. And so um, Kyle, though, to his credit, is a is a super organized guy. And oh, so yeah. he told me, he's like, look, man, I've got notes and boxes of stuff. And so he and I were actually going back and forth because he finally, uh, not finally, but he finished code red and i finished weapons grade and i sent him this email that was like release the dogs send me what you got (laughs) so he sent me code red and he said read it and then let's talk about what i have because i've probably got more um, bibles and notes and stuff than you'll ever want and so um with with kyle it it should be a little bit easier i think i talked to brandon sanderson a uh a few years ago and uh, about uh, when he took over the wheel of time series yeah, for Robert Jordan, for Robert Jordan. And, and there were just massive amounts of notes. And then he had to figure out how to, how to end yeah. this series. And yeah, uh, that would have, that would have given me he answers. Was, I'm a huge Robert Jordan fan. And I was very anxious to see how yeah. Brandon was going to be able to do it because there were so many plots and so many threads and stuff. And I, I don't know if, if this is true, I thought or had read that I thought that Brandon went in and saw Robert Jordan as he was he was um, pretty close to the end. And he kind of right. dictated some notes and stuff for him. But he did. He's an amazing writer, obviously, in his own right. But to yeah. be able to take that series and bring it back into a, a satisfying conclusion is incredible. Right. You you talked a minute ago about about Clancy and, and how mm-hmm. Clancy's books were, you know, doorstops. And yeah. um, we I, I had a friend uh, that that uh, we used to read Clancy books all the time and talk about them. And and I, I forget which book it was, The Bear and the Dragon, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he's he, he asked me how it's going. I said, well, I'm on page 200 and he's still introducing characters, <laughs> um, you know, and that was kind of a hallmark of Clancy. These huge mm-hmm. sprawling stories with, you know, characters just, you know, yeah. everywhere. Um, and one thing I've noticed about you and um, a couple of the other authors that are writing in Clancy's world is that you don't necessarily try to imitate his writing yeah. style as yeah. much as use characters and, and settings that were already created. And then it, it's very much a Don Bentley book writing in the Clancy universe. Uh, you're you're yeah. not trying to imitate Clancy's way of writing. And I know I'm, I'm probably not making sense when I, when I describe that, but um, it, is there a, a, a temptation or like, I, I guess when you take over a legacy, like that what what is the temptation to like how close do i stay to clancy how how much am i free to to write in my own way does that make sense at all no absolutely and that's a that's a great distinction and so again going back to my editor tom colgan he when i he said two things um when i when i got the clancy job that were both um very instrumental in in helping me find my place as a writer and kind of reassuring me. And the first thing he said, and so Tom Colgan has a number of legacy series. He manages the Bourne stuff. He manages the Clancy stuff, the W.E.B. Griffin, like 
whole bunch of legacy stuff. And what he said to me is that um, he said, one of my strengths, one of Tom's strengths as an editor is that I can pick the right writers for a series and you are the right writer for the series because I picked you. So you don't have to, you don't have to worry about if you can do it. You don't have to second guess yourself. You're the right writer for this. And then the second thing he said is that I don't want you to try and write like Tom Clancy or to imitate his style. He said, you know, nobody can write like Tom is. He said, I, I want you to basically write fan fiction. And he's like, I want you to do what you do with the Matt Drake series, but do it in this universe. And so every time a new Clancy book of mine comes out, there's always at least one kind soul on social media who says, you should be ashamed of yourself for profiting off the Clancy name. And, uh, and first off, I'm not the one profiting off the Clancy name. But secondly, right. you know, what I try and explain it to people is I'm a Star Wars fan. And so George Lucas created this rich and vibrant universe with a number of characters and then he invited writers to come in and make that universe bigger and richer yeah. and expand it with all the different Star Wars books and now the movies and stuff like that. And for me, that's what we're trying to do in the Clancy universe is that Tom Clancy in, you know, invented this rich and dynamic um, universe populated by iconic characters. And we get to write fan fiction in it and let it come on. And so it's not... Um, it is a little more restrictive in the sense that um, I'm writing one book and Mark Cameron is writing the other book. And so what I, what we, neither of us want to do is give readers whiplash where they read a Mark book and then a Don book in there and say, man, Clark felt like this when Mark wrote him and this, like what Don wrote him. And so we've been, and Mark Cameron's a great guy to work with. We try and deconflict so that we're not writing the same characters or that, the way Mark writes Jack Ryan Sr. is the way that Jack Ryan Sr. is written through the entire um, series. And so we do do a lot of behind the scenes stuff like that, where um, my next two books, so my my editor said that Zero Hour was more of a Jack Ryan Sr. book because it was bigger in scope. And so Flashpoint and Weapons Grade very much follow that um, and are actually even bigger. And so there were times where uh, I had to tell Mark, I'm like, look, I need to have a vantage point into the White House because this, this, and this is happening in the story. I don't want to write Jack Ryan Sr., but who's the character I can have that I can use as that vantage point? And so hopefully all of that is transparent to the reader, but as writers, we do go through a lot of work just to, because we always have our customers in mind, right? The last thing I want is for somebody to go from Mark's book to my book and say, ah, there's something about this that feels off. And so we do uh, make a pretty big effort to try and make that smooth sailing for the reader. And when is your, your next Clancy book coming out? Yeah, so it's called Flashpoint and it comes out... Um, I guess pretty soon when it, or it's, it's the 23rd of May. I'm sorry. I probably okay, said the 23rd. 3rd of May. Yeah. yeah the 23rd of May. Okay. I, I'm losing. I'm on book tour right now. I don't <laughs> even know what day it is. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that. But yeah. right now, Matt Drake novel book four, Forgotten, Forgotten War, War, is out everywhere. Go to your lo- local bookstore, grab it, uh, support local books. But y- if you can't, we'll put links to it in the show notes where you can grab it from Amazon or uh, Audible. Have you have you listened to the audiobook of this yet, Don? Yeah, so I'm midway through it now. And it's funny, as a writer, I can't ever really read my own stuff because it's, 
even if it's been, you know, six weeks or a month or a year, when I read it, all I see are mistakes or things I wish I would have did, done different. But when Scott Brick reads it to me, he's oh. phenomenal. And he's, oh, yeah. it's like hearing the story for the first time. And honestly, that's the day the book comes out, I get Scott Brick delivered to my audiobook, And that's kind of my little celebration is I get to listen to him tell me the story. So I'm about a quarter of the way through it now. I love it. Love it. I'm going to grab the audio book. I've, I've read the arc that your publisher sent me a mm-hmm. month ago or so, but I always look forward to on release day when the audio comes out to yep. get the experience, the book, you know, in a new way all over again. Yep. Forgotten yep. War out everywhere now. Go grab it. Uh, Don, if if folks are just discovering you, God forbid, where they, what <laughs> rock have they been hiding under? Um, what's your website? Tell people where they can connect with you online. Yeah, absolutely. So my website's real easy. It's just donbentleybooks.com. So B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. And if you're there, you can click on my newsletter and that's where um, my subscribers find out about what I'm working on, contests, everything first there. If you're a social media person, I'm on um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And for all three, my handle is just at Bentley Don B. So at B-E-N-T-L-E-Y-D-O-N-B. Excellent. Don. Thanks, as always, for stopping by, and uh, we're going to send everyone to see you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hank. Thanks for joining us, y'all. And we are live here in the Storycraft Cafe. Thanks for joining me. This is Hank Garner, your host. And today I'm super excited to have Taylor Adams on the show. Taylor has an amazing new book. It's called The Last Word, and what a fun thrill ride this book is i love it so much taylor i've loved your your other two books that that uh we've gotten to chat about the last couple of years and was super excited when i saw that this book was coming out and uh there's so much that i love about this book we'll get to it in just a minute but welcome to the show hi thank you so much for having me and uh yeah thank you so much Absolutely. Uh, you're in the uh, Pacific Northwest right now, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm how's in the, the weather? Seattle area. Uh, you know, surprisingly good today. It's actually yeah. kind of partly cloudy and partly sunny. It's it's a better it's better Washington weather than depicted in the book. <laughs> well, the your your background there is is gorgeous. The the green trees everywhere. It's uh, uh, yeah, it, like you said, that much better than what's uh, depicted in the book. Um. Before we jump in and get started, um, there, there's a question I've been asking people lately that's kind of fun, and I'd, I'd like to get your input on it. Um, as writers, we often get advice from all sorts of people, um, you know, writing advice, career advice. Some of it is wonderful, and we hold on to that, and we're just so grateful that someone shared, you know, a bit of their experience with us, and some of it is just horrible and either we <laughs> wish we would have never taken it or we're so glad we didn't take it is there a piece of advice that sticks in your mind good or bad um that uh that that you've received ooh you know i, I it's funny i always remember the really good advice yeah. um i always forget the i guess the bad <laughs> advice that's probably um, the best uh, yeah i'm trying the best think. way to handle that I don't know. I, I think the best advice, best advice I've ever heard, um, and it's the advice I always try to try to give, is just write every day. 
and yeah. uh, try to make a routine out of it and just fit those words in and, and hit a word count every day. And that really, I don't know where I heard that. I probably heard it from lots of people, but it really, yeah. really stuck with me. I saw a video the other day um, with John Mayer, the the singer, songwriter, guitar player, and they were asking him about his songwriting process. And and he said, so I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but but what what he was getting at was being a professional songwriter means you write songs and the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Not that it's ever easy. But getting into that mindset, getting into that flow state is easier when you are accustomed to doing it, when you have built those writing muscles up, when when you know when you pick the guitar up that something is gonna happen, you know, and and still being open to, you know, kind of the the randomness of life. But there's something to be said about having a routine, knowing your tools that you're using. You know, in our case, it's a word processor and a and a laptop or something. But, um, you know, but there there is something to be said for building those routines and and knowing that when you go to the equipment you're going to use, something's going to happen. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I usually at the start of my writing day, <laughs> I never want to write at the start. I'm always like, yeah, yeah this somehow can I call this a day off? Is there any way I can not do this? But you know, I force myself to do it and I hit my word count. And at the end of the day, I'm like, okay, I got some things done. Even if it wasn't a hugely productive day, like yeah. I'm still glad I, I put myself in front of the screen and I got some work done. And I made some incremental progress toward having a book finished. There's it's, it's kind of like the advice that you hear from um, someone we're talking about exercise, you know, that nobody wants to go run eight miles but if you tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to go for a 15 minute walk, get out in the sunshine, breathe some air. It's a whole lot easier to just continue than it is to say, OK, my 15 minutes is up. I'm going to pack it in and go to the house. Totally. It's all about momentum. Yeah. I, I guess I wouldn't know about the exercise. I should exercise, but I don't. But I, I think like writing is probably a lot like working out in that way where it's like you you know, it's, it's hard to get yourself moving, but then once you're moving, you're like, okay, I can keep doing this. I can, right. I can do more. Right. Um, the last word is, is this your third published novel? It's my fifth. Um, wait, fifth? Now I'm drawing a blank. Yes, it is my fifth. <laughs> fifth. Okay. Um, d- does it get easier? You know, five books in does, does, I, does the, let, let me let me qualify that. It you know, writing is always work. Um, but does it does the routine get easier? Uh, I know that the blank page is kind of the uh, the great equalizer. You know, whether you <laughs> right. published a hundred novels or this is your first, everybody starts at the blank page. But but does it get easier? Um, maybe in some ways, I. I don't know. It, it feels like every book that I write, I can remember a point when I was writing it and thinking like, oh my God, this is the hardest book I've ever written. I Was I ever working this hard? You know, something must be really wrong with the story if I am working this hard on it and I'm still not happy with it. And I've, I've learned that I feel that way about every book. And I think it's just me being a whiner. And because when I look back at a book after it's done, I don't remember all the hard work. I just remember, okay, I'm, I'm happy with that. And, uh, you know, when you're when you're in it, when you're in the trenches, it's really easy to only see all the things that are wrong with the book. And, you know, in that way, maybe it gets harder and harder for me because I 
I kind of like, I, I want to keep topping myself and I want to, you know, there are things about each of my books that I'm very happy with and I, I want to constantly do better. And I, you know, it's, it's hard to keep, keep growing and keep doing better. Right. So what, when, when it's time to start a new project, um, what is, what's usually the beginning for you? Like, uh, you know, when you start thinking when it's time to start writing the new book and, and you just have a, a blank canvas, how do you start the, the process of determining your characters and what kind of problem I, am I going to put them through and, you know, all of that sort of thing? I usually kind of like, I'll start with a premise that, that intrigues me and I'll sort of develop it from there. And I will, I'll go through so many word docs of uh, all type of outlines and I'll just outline and I'll re-outline and just for weeks and weeks, I'll keep retyping the same outline and just kind of trying new things and swapping new characters in and swapping characters out or trying it in a new setting or just kind of finding, finding ways to like kind of mold it into something that I, I like. And then eventually it'll reach kind of a critical mass where I'm like, okay, I, I like this enough and I feel like there's enough here that I could spend the next year or so writing drafts of this and, you know, not lose my mind. <laughs> right. And uh, that's usually when I, I start a first draft. And then, uh, you know, the first draft is always discouragingly terrible. Um, <laughs> As first draft should be. Yeah. Um, and then it's just kind of a matter of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And I really, I enjoy the rewriting process. The first draft, first few drafts are always my least favorite because it's, I always kind of feel like I'm flailing. But once I've got it, once I'm a few drafts in, you know, I know the shape of the story. I know more or less where I'm trying to end it. I know who's, who's in it. I know what the stakes are. And with each draft afterward, you know, I, I kind of, I feel better and better about it. And it's like, I solved the big problems. Then I solved the medium sized problems. And then, the last few drafts are really fun because it's, you know, it's me kind of fine tuning the suspense or fine tuning right. the, the dialogue, which is fun. Dialogue is very fun to write. Oh yeah. Do, do you ever begin a project and know the ending? Like I've had this happen only a couple of times where I, I know the resolution. It's like I, I have an epiphany. Oh. oh, this would be so cool. If, if a, a mystery unraveled like this, and then I have to go back and figure out now, how do I get there? You know, that, that's the hard part is figuring out how to take these mundane characters and get them to this grand resolution that I have no idea how it's going to happen. <laughs> I, you know, I think more or less, I mean, my books always change so much throughout the rewriting process, but I think more or less, I kind of, in a gut level, it's like, I kind of know where I want this character to start and where I want them to end up. Even if, you know, the mechanics of, you know, who shoots who or different or, or right. change throughout. Um, but I think kind of in broad strokes, I, I usually know where I want the story to go. And, uh, but you know, that said, I, I would say out of all the things that I rewrite or all the parts of the story that I rewrite, it's always like the third act um, that I rewrite the most. And that I probably put the most attention to, cause it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the part where like, if you have a structural problem with your story, you might not see it until the, the, the third act, right. but then that's kind of the truth serum. And that's where, you know, everything has to come together. And if you're missing something, you know, yeah. well, you'll well, see and, it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way. Hopefully you'll understand what I'm saying, but it, it's almost like the third act is where everyone starts paying really close attention. Not that they haven't been paying attention throughout the book, but maybe they don't know that they're supposed to, 
be latching on to this detail or that until the third act. And then they start pulling, Oh, I remember this. And I remember how this character did this and you know, it all. So that third act is that that's great advice that, that really pay attention to where, how those things are resolving in, in act three for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I mean, the third act is kind of where you pay everything off. And so that's always where I try to, you know, everything that I set up, I try to try to bring back or use in some way in the third act. And I mean, just as a reader, I mean, reading third acts, that's, that's my favorite part. The last right. you know, 50 to a hundred pages of any book is always the kind of the sprint to get to the end. That right. Right. Um, Taylor, the last word is, um, is a definitive Taylor Adams book. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean, there are, the stakes are high um, and the storytelling is visceral without uh, venturing into um, gruesome. Uh, if that, if that means anything, but um, there's a, there's a fine line sometimes between thriller and, and horror. Um, and, and a lot of times you'll bump right up onto that line and then kind of pull back a little bit, but in your mind, uh, what is the difference between a thriller and a horror novel? Oh man. Um, it's so tough to say, cause it's like, it's so easy to, like you said, you know, when you're in thriller mode, I, I feel like if you're writing a thriller and you just get kind of carried away with the, the thriller elements, it's so easy to, I mean, because thrillers are about uncertainty and fear, you know, that can, yeah. that really drives a, a spooky thriller. And then, you know, that's, that's really what makes horror horror. I, I don't think I would define any of what I write as horror. And I think maybe that's just because I have kind of a weird personal definition of horror. I like to think of horror as something that, um, as a genre where it'll deliberately not give you what you want as a reader to make a point sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I'm trying to think of a book that would be a good example. Um, there was a book that I read a few years ago that I loved. It was called Leave the World Behind. I can't remember the author's name for the life of me, um, but it's, it's a very, just a beautifully written, really ambiguous um, kind of end of the world story. But it, it, it never, kind of in a Paul Tremblay sort of way, it never gives you the full picture and it, it denies you that closure. And it just forces you to sit on needles, just un- completely unsure, kind of like how, you know, maybe experiencing a real end of the world might be. And uh, even though it's not like a, a horrifying, violent book, like that kind of fits in my personal definition of horror, where it's it's denying me things as a reader that I want to kind of challenge me and make me think and make me experience something. Um, so so in that way, I think I'd, I'd call all my stuff a thriller because you know, a thriller is a little more straightforward and a little more like, you know, kind of delivering the goods. And I try to deliver the goods in a way that hopefully readers, you know, maybe they don't always expect, but hopefully the, the goods that they want to receive. Right. Right. Um, it, is it, um, your books have all been standalones uh, to this point. Is, is there ever, have you ever written a character that at the end of it, you thought, oh, I'd, I'd like to to know what else could happen with this character. Like, has the the draw of of series ever ever pulled on you? You know, not yet. I mean, I can't really rule it out, but um, yeah. 
Yeah, I can't say I've I've yet felt that that draw because you know so often so many of my stories are situational and they're they're about you know a character kind of having a situation thrust upon them and I think the the starting challenge for me is like okay how do I explain how this person got in trouble again <laughs> so yeah I don't know I mean certainly I can't rule it out and I think that would be that would be really fun I think the other challenge is I I just you know, I, I leave so few people alive at the end of my books that it would be basically like a standalone, a new standalone, just with the same central character. Yeah, we'll we'll kill all your darlings. Uh, is is, yeah. is a, uh, something you're very fond of, apparently. <laughs> and and speaking of that, the the last word is one of my favorite uh, setups for a book ever. I, I am a sucker for books about writers or um about book lovers and the the book industry there there's some glorious inside baseball about it that that i just love um and and i I love the premise of this book um so to tell folks uh kind of where this idea for this came from and kind of set it up for us sure so uh the last word is about a woman who lives alone um, with her golden retriever in a really isolated location on a beach. And we don't really know a lot about why she's there. We get the sense she's running from something, but we don't know what. And uh, she's spending her time reading just books that she downloads online. Um, she powers through two to three books a day. And uh, she reads just this awful horror novel that's it's just it's terrible. And uh, she finishes it and she's like, wow, that sucked. And she writes a one-star <laughs> review online. And uh, the author reads that review and comes after her. And so it's kind of like a, maybe like a reverse misery where it's the, uh, the <laughs> author terrorizing a reader. Um, but I was, when I, when I kind of got the, the first kind of seed of this idea, I was really, really excited. And I was the whole time I was writing it, I was like, Oh, please, I hope nobody else comes out with a book about this, you know, a year before me. Um, but, you know, as a, as a, as a writer, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm aware of reader reviews and I try really hard just not to look at, you know, reviews of my own work because, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's good and there's bad and it's easy to dwell on the bad. And uh, that was kind of where the, the idea of the story came from is, okay, what if, what if somebody, what if an author really read his own reviews and when he got, you know, his butt kicked, didn't have the, self-awareness to go, okay, maybe the problem is that I need to be a better writer. You know, what if this guy instead turned his rage on the reviewer? Right. Um, I remember, um, and, and it's, it's very difficult to not read reviews and, and, you know, what people think of your work, because sometimes reviews can have very, very helpful information. And you can tell, you know, this story didn't connect with this reader because this problem and maybe I can be cognizant of cognizant of that the next time around, you know, and, but, but you have to go into that with a, with a healthy mindset, you know, <laughs> to, to, to take that uh, criticism. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, maybe there was a lot of discussion in some online writers groups that I was in about uh, an author that started answering reviews and just no. getting into horrid arguments with people online. And, you know, everyone was joking about it, like, this is, this is not going to end well. Um, I, I don't think anyone predicted 
um, that it was going to turn out like it does in the last word, which I thought was hilarious because I, I kind of, I understood the setup. I, I was like, I could totally see how this could happen. Um, did you just have, when, when kind of the, uh, the story idea and the premise clicked, was there a, a giddy joy that this was going to be so much fun to write? Oh, absolutely. The, uh, I mean, there was also a lot of uh, worry too, because tonally from the very start, I knew that this was going to have to be more comedic than, you know, my other books to, yeah. you know, because basically this is about, I mean, it's a writer killing a reader or trying to kill a reader. You know, that's, it would be a very different villain from what I've written before. I'd have to get the, just the right balance of kind of humor and a little bit of cringe, but also, you know, keep him genuinely scary at the same time. Like there, there was a huge balancing act that I was, I was very nervous about going into it. Um, but I was also really excited because it's, you know, the structure of the story too really allowed me to play with the suspense and play with the character. You know, I, I should probably be really careful that I don't go too far into spoilers, but you know, some of the book being a, a book within a book, um, and we've got these different unreliable narrators, different characters, voices giving right. recollections of the same event. And we can kind of tell as the reader who's lying and who's telling the truth. Um, I, I had so much fun with that. And then there was definitely a lot of, a lot of giddy joy in the, uh, in developing the story. I'd say like 50% giddy joy, 50% fear that I was going to mess it up because I was so excited for the idea. <laughs> Right, right. Um, the the humor that you mentioned um, is a. I don't want to say it's a departure from your other books. Um, it, it's not a departure so much as it's an added element. Let me let me put it that way. That brings uh, a certain texture to the story and to this character specifically, because uh, you, you're absolutely right. When um, humor can be taken. Uh, different ways in a book it, it can either come across as slapstick and just silly um it can be used to bring a little levity to a really tense story and kind of let the the reader's uh adrenaline kind of come back down a little bit before you hit them again uh, mm -hmm. and then it can also kind of show the off-kilter kind of craziness of a villain which makes them seem more sinister in a, in a weird way, um, were you kind of weighing all of those different, uh, aspects of this, uh, antagonist? Yeah, definitely. Cause there's, there's certainly elements. I think what I was kind of going for too, was, you know, the, the first half of the book is very, I won't say conventional, but it's kind of what you'd expect for a home invasion kind of thriller. And it's a little more of a slow burn. And then the second half is just kind of crazy town. And, the first half I, I wanted to kind of build this character up. Like I might build up, like if I was trying to make kind of like an eighties slasher villain. And I, I even, right. I think I name a few slasher villains. So I'm not very subtle with what I'm trying to do, you know, to kind of build up this, this masked killer. And then in the second half, try to totally subvert that and, and, you know, create something that's terrifying in the dark, but when the lights are on kind of funny and even just sad. And uh, hopefully still scary, but just scary in a different way, scary in like a, a real life kind of way, because, you know, in real life, you know, there lots of really awful things aren't done by criminal masterminds. They're done by weak, wounded, 
often really just pathetic people. And, and it, it doesn't matter how pathetic or laughable somebody is, if they have a gun or if they have a weapon, they are incredible. They can be incredibly dangerous. And that was, that was the kind of fear that I wanted to switch gears to. Cause it's like, you know, for the first half, it's kind of, you know, slasher genre territory. And then for the second half, I really wanted to take that apart and try to keep the tension up just in a different way. Yeah. Your, your protagonist in, in Emma, you have, uh, a complex character that is not a not a typical thriller protagonist um you know she she has lots of challenges uh that kind of keep her uh her world small Let, let's put it that way um what was the idea behind uh, emma as as a protagonist I wanted, uh, you know, kind of, especially early on when we don't know a lot about her, I wanted readers to really kind of see themselves in her and sort of put themselves in her place. And, uh, you know, as a reader who's read a lot of this kind of book before, in some ways she's really well prepared for that night for the, for the author's attack, because she, she kind of is able to call some of these things before they happen. Um, so you know, for the first half, I really wanted people to, you know, identify with her in that way. And then when the the full kind of depth of her history is revealed and you learn, you know, what she's what she's running from and what she's fighting for and what she still has left in her life, that if she can turn things around, that she can still that she has waiting for her on the other side. You know, it's kind of a I see her arc as kind of like a redemption arc or not even really redemption, but just overcoming overcoming grief, overcoming, you know, this, this awful thing that happened to her. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm happy with how, how all that turned out. I, I feel like every, every book that I write, there has to be some sort of emotional core, some sort of strong emotion that, that appeals to me. And uh, for this one, it was really, you know, it was Emma's journey from completely isolating herself from just cutting herself off from all human contact in a very unhealthy way and kind of, you know, leaning into her worst traits already because she was already an introvert and then finding the strength to turn around from that and to rejoin the world. And that's part of why I set it on a beach too, just because, you know, on the coast, you're kind of at the, the edge of your world. There's nowhere else to go except into the water, which is touched on. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be careful with spoilers, but yeah. Uh, yeah, she was a, it was a fun character to write. And uh, yeah, I, I'm happy with how it turned out. <laughs> the The setting is um, uh, something else I wanted to ask you about because I, I love how you said, you know, the edge of the water is kind of the the edge of her world, and she's pushed up right against it. Um, this character is not from there, though. She's a transplant from the the mountainous Salt Lake area. Um, I, was it, it was Salt Lake, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so that's an interesting juxtaposition, those two um, locales and how she winds up kind of literally pushed up against the edge of of our continent. Um, what, what were some of the ideas behind setting and how you were going to use those to really bring out her character and to amp up the tension? Yeah. So, I mean, I love isolation in a thriller, obviously. You know, I, I incorporate that in some way, shape or form in all of my work. But, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, really pretty beaches in Washington state where I'm from. And uh, there's also, I mean, a lot of rain. Um, there's yeah. a very distinctive climate that we have here. And uh, 
honestly, just a, a open beach with a lot of open grass and, you know, very little hills, very little trees, a lot of fog, a lot of rain. Like that was just a, that was a really just evocative mental image for me of just, of, of kind of just a sensation of being lost. And, uh, you know, I, I created a fictional island. I took little bits and pieces of, of uh, places that I visited in Washington that I really liked. But, uh, you know, this is a completely fictional town, fictional island, fictional geography. And, you know, I, right. I probably exaggerate the amount of rain that it gets because <laughs> I don't think I don't know if it ever rains that much, even in Washington. But, uh, you know, it's kind of more an idea than a place. And I think that's kind of your setting. Uh, the, the role of a setting in a story is just creating a context for for the characters. And uh, yeah, a rainy Washington beach, just really, I, I think that was always a part of the, from the very first outline. I don't know why I just, I had a beach in my head. I wanted it to take place at a beach, maybe because people read books at the beach. I don't know. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, this book, uh, when did you begin writing this book? Oh gosh. Um, Probably a couple of years ago. Yeah, I was, let's see, I was writing it before Hairpin released. I think okay. I started it 2020, 2021, maybe. Okay. So it's so, been about two years. So the, so the world was still kind of in this, this weird COVID time that, that yeah. we were going through. And um, I, I've wondered how, that time period is going to start seeping out into the, the books that we, that we write and buy. And, um, you know, there've been a couple of books written where they kind of incorporate that into the plot and it's kind of on the nose. But, um, but what I've, what I'm really starting to see is uh, these stories of isolation and um, people being separated and that, that really don't mention COVID, but you know that that time had some effect on the story. Are you, are you seeing that seep into your writing at all or some of those emotions coming out? I think it, it definitely it's, I couldn't help but have that seep in because man, that was a, that was a weird time. Yeah. Um, you know, and certainly kind of, you know, just some of the the early on kind of the scene setting of just, you know, Emma having her, her groceries appear at her door and then just not talking to wondering how many weeks it's been since she heard a human voice. Like, I think all of that, I think COVID was pretty, pretty high in my mind when all of that was uh, being put together. I tried not to, I don't think I ever mentioned COVID in there. I think, you know, for, I, at least I don't for, remember seeing it. Yeah, I, th I think at least for the stories that I try to do, I think it's best to just keep that under the surface. But I'm really curious, you know, because now we're in that we're in that time frame where all the books that were written during or after COVID, like they're all going to start coming out. And, and I'm exactly. curious what we're going to see. Right, right. Well, Taylor, um, this book uh, came out yesterday uh, when if you're listening to this live, the last word is out available everywhere now what are you working on now because uh, i know that this book has probably been off your desk for a while um what are you up to these days so i am doing uh, another thriller surprise surprise um and i don't know how much i can say about it but um i've been really fascinated by caves lately as a setting and Ooh. you know yeah caves and not just like you know really big caves but you know the the terrifying tight claustrophobic crawlspace caves that people still like to explore. And uh, there's a surprising amount of them 
all over the place. Um, I've been able to visit a few, which has been really exciting. But um, as a setting for a thriller, I was just, I, I could have so much fun with that. And I'm really, really enjoying both the research and the kind of outlining, putting the story together. I'm, I'm getting this tight clinch in my chest just thinking about it. I, that's, yeah, you're going to, that's going to have to come with a, with a warning or something on the cover. <laughs> if I've done my job right, it will. That's right. That's right. Um, Taylor, the last word available everywhere. Now we're going to put links to it in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find that if they want to grab it over at Amazon or audible. Um, have you listened to the audiobook treatment of this yet? I listened to the sample. Um, I'm, I think they did an awesome job. I'm really excited. It's uh, it's two voices, which um, once you read the book, you'll kind of see yeah. you know, why two voices was a good uh, good choice for that. And I, I think they nailed it. I'm really excited for the audio. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I read the, the arc of this uh, a month ago, maybe. And I've been waiting for release day so I could go grab it from Audible. That's It's a completely different experience a lot of times when reading it and then listening to it performed and getting a voice, uh, you know, to go along with it. So I'm excited about that. I'm uh, usually afraid, afraid to listen to audiobooks of uh, audio versions of my books. Cause I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have changed that sentence. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the editor never turns off. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll put links to it where you can grab it uh, from Amazon or audible or go visit your local bookstore, support local books. The last word Knocked it out of the park again, Taylor. Thank, uh, you. thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.